Welcome back. Thanks for 277k and listens. Good for you. You guys have taste. Even if it's just my sensors. Guess what? We find out that uh, NSA lives across the street. I'm David Wilcock, and welcome to Disclosure. This is my third interview with Graham Hancock, all about pyramids. We're going to go pyramid crazy on this episode, and for good reason. If you think that pyramids have only appeared in Egypt and in South America, then you're absolutely incorrect. Believe it or not, pyramids have been found all over the world. Pyramids have been found, for example, in India, except that they're called temples. There are temples in India that are very much pyramid-like. There's also over 100 pyramids that have been found in the Xi'an province of China. And they come up at shallow angles and then have flat tops looking very similar to the ones in Mesoamerica. We also have the mound builders in North America, and many of these mounds actually originally were covered with white plaster, and they also looked like pyramids. And if you remember what I was talking about with Andrew Collins, those mounds were excavated, and over and over again, giant skeletons were found inside of them. All the evidence of the mound builders in North America has been completely swept away. Most of the mounds were destroyed. The skeletons that were found in them were confiscated by the Smithsonian Institution. And then they acted like nothing ever happened. But then we go over to Indonesia, and there's a pyramid you're going to hear about in Indonesia called Suku that looks exactly like the Pyramid of Kukulkan in the middle of South America. What the heck is going on here? <laughs> pyramids are appearing all over the world. There's even pyramids that have been found in Australia, like the Gimpy Pyramid. There's actually a pyramid that was found in Indonesia called Lalakan. They've been found all over the planet. There's an island in the middle of Indonesia in which they have found over 1,776 individual cone-shaped mounds that are basically pyramids. It's just that they're round at the bottom. So this is something that's ongoing. I am going to have some pyramid episodes coming up on my show, Wisdom Teachings, probably later in this coming year, 2015. But this is just tapping the beginning of what there is to explore. Graham Hancock is also going to talk about the idea of shamanism through psychedelic drug ingestion. Something that some people are really into. It is a very dangerous thing to do. I do not recommend it. But Graham does describe that many indigenous cultures see half-animal, half-human beings called therianthropes, and that these beings apparently are responsible for giving us a great deal of knowledge. So there's a whole lot of interesting information in this section of my groundbreaking interview with Graham Hancock, and I invite you to enjoy it with me. Let's check it out. So when we see the step pyramids in Mesoamerica... There is, of course, as you know, the Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan has almost exactly the same base perimeter as the Great Pyramid of Giza. It does, yeah. yeah. And, and it has the same 
pi relationship between its height and its uh, perimeter, uh, except it's two, two, two pi instead of one pi, if I remember correctly. Um, there, there's the, the geometric. There's a geometrical um, connection between the Pyramid of the Sun and the Great Pyramid of Giza. I went into it at some depth in uh, in Fingerprints of the Gods. Ah, um, but, but the, the, it's not only there. Uh, How do conventional archaeologists explain? Pyramids on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Well, what do they is, try to say? This is again a very interesting question. Good question. Um, until the last ten years or so, the answer of conventional archaeologists to the appearance of pyramids and indeed step pyramids all over the world was that this is a complete coincidence. Um, that there, there, there's no that there's no causal connection between the two. And and their argument was this: they said, look, okay, you've got the step pyramid of Zoser in Saqqara in Lower Egypt, and um, you have the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico, which is also a step pyramid. But the Pyramid of the Sun is much younger than the Pyramid of Zosa by a factor of thousands of years. The Pyramid of Zosa is 2,500, 2,700 actually BC, and the Pyramid of the Sun is 300 BC at the oldest, possibly as late as 300 or 400 AD. Uh, so how could there be a connection when they're separated so far in time? And the general argument was that there are no old world pyramids that are as old as the Pyramids of Giza. They're all much, much younger, and therefore it must be a coincidence that the pyramid shape has been replicated all over the world. Well, what's utterly destroyed that argument is the excavation and discovery of the site known as Caral in the Supe Valley, about 60 miles north of Lima uh, in Peru. Uh, and I've just been at Caral recently. And this is a gigantic pyramid complex. And they are step pyramids, and they've been excavated by mainstream archaeologists. And unfortunately for the argument of mainstream archaeology that there can be no connection because of these chronological differences, the pyramids of Caral and of Banduria, a little further south, do date precisely to 2500 to 3000 BC, exactly the same period as the pyramids seemingly pop up out of nowhere in, uh, in, in ancient Egypt. So suddenly the argument that there can't be a connection because of there's a huge chronological difference between pyramids in the old world and the new is destroyed uh, completely. And they, they did stratigraphy and uh, dated with carbon dating Absolutely. The dirt around these yeah, pyramids? Yeah, very, very thorough, massive excavation. And there's just no doubt about it. These pyramids date 2500 to 3000 BC. Uh, and appear to have been built on a site that was older before that, that there was something there before that. They're still getting into that. And that's, again, the same, the same story that you get at Giza. Uh, I was recently in Indonesia, um, uh, near uh, about four hours' uh, drive from the famous uh, pyramid of Borobudur, and Borobudur is a kind of pyramid, Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's an amazing pyramid, which I spent several days And it looks exploring. like a step pyramid. It looks like a step pyramid. Well, about four hours' drive from there, up in the hills, there's another pyramid, a place called Suku, S-U-K-U-H. And that, when, when my wife Santa and I arrived there, my wife Santa is a phot photographer, when we arrived there, we felt that we had been transported by some magical machine to, to, to Central America. We felt that we were looking at a Mayan pyramid. It looked just ex almost exactly like the Pyramid of Kukulkan uh, at Chichen Itza, um, or, or the Pyramid of the Inscriptions at, P at Palenque, or the Pyramids of Tikal. Um, 
this a pyramid confronts us. It's a step pyramid, and there's this eerie mist floating around it as well. It looked exactly, you know, like Tikal in the dawn. Wow. It was just an incredible thing. And there it is, sitting there in the in the mountains, and fairly firmly dated to about the last thousand years, pretty much the same sort of age as the pyramid of Kukulkan, actually, in, in Chichen Itza. Now, mm. what I think we have to consider is the possibility that a remote common influence has left its imprint all around the world, that this pyramid idea is not popping up accidentally. First of all, we've established that there are pyramids every bit as old as the Egyptian pyramids in South America. And secondly, we must consider that, yes, there are pyramids that were built later as well in many different parts of the world, but it's not a coincidence that they're being built. What we're looking at here is the manifestation of a very ancient worldwide idea uh, of, of how monuments should be, should be made and what they should be dedicated to. Because in almost all cases, actually all cases as far as I know, these monuments are dedicated to the quest for immortality of the soul. Doesn't it seem too like there couldn't be a more difficult architectural project to take on? Well, Why would you go to such incredible difficulty you have to have Why a, would these? How do you even organize the people to move these blocks? You have to have a very strong. You have to have a very strong motive to to do it. Actually, Barabado is quite an interesting case because you know this was built in the historical period. We do have records of the construction of Barabado, uh, and Barabado, which is by the way very large, but really very small by comparison with the Great Pyramid of Giza. Right. Barabado uh, took the best part of ninety years to build. Hmm. Ninety years wow. and. How then can Egyptologists say and continue to insist that the Great Pyramid was built during the reign of Khufu in just 20 or 23 years, when, when at, a, at a later time in a very advanced culture in Indonesia, uh, the monumental project of Barabadur, which is smaller than the Great Pyramid by several orders of magnitude, that the Pyramid of Barabadur, uh, it takes 90 years to build. Obviously, it doesn't make sense that the Great Pyramid was built in just 20, 23 years. And that writes off its connection, direct connection, to the Pharaoh Khufu. Well, let's talk about the casing stones that Colonel Howard Vise eventually discovered at the base of the Great Pyramid. Yeah. A lot of people don't know the pyramid was originally faced with white limestone that was mirror polished. Indeed. We are looking at, uh, when we look at the pyramids today, we're looking at the core of the former pyramids. In some cases, Parts of the casing stones have survived. They've survived near the top of the pyramid attributed to Khafre, the second pyramid at right. Giza. Uh, you can see that highly polished sheer limestone facing uh, up near the summit of the second pyramid. And you can see it, but in this case in granite, around the base of the third pyramid, the pyramid attributed to Menkara. In the case of the Pyramid of Giza, the pyramid attributed to Khufu, and I'm saying attributed to because actually we don't know who made these pyramids. Uh, when Egyptologists blithely say the Pyramid of Khufu, the Pyramid of Khafre, the Pyramid of Menkara, there really is no authority to say that. It's, uh, it's like a fairy tale. Um, well, as but, you know, Colonel Vives is running out of money. Yeah. And on the last day, he finds these quarry marks. Well, this is this that is had the same errors in them as Wallace Budge's book yeah. for the time. This is a very interesting thing. Um, I've spent quite a lot of time in the relieving chambers above the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid, 
Um, and there are, there are some factors which militate against the forgery argument, and we need to keep that into, in mind when we're discussing this. For example, if you shine a bright light into the gaps, and so in some cases the gaps between the blocks up there in the relieving chambers are about that wide, you know, oh. about an inch wide in some cases. You can shine a bright light and you can see that there are glyphs appearing way back in that gap. Oh, really? There are glyphs of some kind uh, appearing way back in that gap. There's no way that Howard Weiss made those. However, the Khufu Cartouche, which is the single piece of evidence that connects the Great Pyramid to Khufu, is not in one of those gaps. The Khufu Cartouche is out there in the open, in plain view, uh, and that actually easily could have been forged. The fact that, the fact that there is evidence of writing going back between the blocks, um, which could not have been forged, doesn't rule out the possibility that the Khufu cartouche could have been forged. And there is indeed compelling evidence that Howard Weiss did forge that cartouche, uh, and that he had strong motives to do so, uh, given that he was running out of money and was in need of a, a major discovery. And they didn't find any statues, they didn't find and as any you treasure, they, they didn't, didn't find, find any writing. No, no. They just go inside no. the Great Pyramid, it's just a bunch of the great, halls and chambers. The Great Pyramid still guards its secrets. I believe we will find other chambers within, within the Great Pyramid. Mm. Those little so-called air shafts, which are not air shafts, that run uh, north and south out of the so-called Queen's Chamber, and we need to say so-called because we don't know what these chambers were called in antiquity, run north and south. They don't terminate outside the pyramid. They, right. they terminate somewhere inside the pyramid. Uh, and, and just as we know that there is a large chamber at the bottom of the northern and southern shafts of the Queen's Chamber, we call that chamber the Queen's Chamber, I think it's very likely that we're going to find chambers at the other end of those shafts as well. And, you know, as I think many people are aware, there has been robotic exploration of those shafts. Uh, those robots have first, first of all found doors with metal handles. When they've drilled through the doors, they find a gap and then another door behind it. It's a challenge. It's yeah. a technical challenge to find out what's in those shafts. It's almost like somebody's playing games with us. Right. But it's a kind of invitation, you know, to look further. If you've got what it takes, and you have to have what it takes, you, you know, you can't be the Caliph Mamun in the ninth, ninth century. You're not going to explore those shafts. There's no way you're going to get into them. You have to have a, a pretty high level of technical advancement in order to explore those shafts. Well, we've got that level now, and it'll be interesting to see what comes. I think, I think other chambers will be found. Will those chambers turn out to be the burial place of Khufu? Personally, I don't think so. I think they're going to rewrite history, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm just going on my gut feeling, but I think we're going to find something. I don't buy that uh, cartouche in the relieving chambers. As but isn't that almost the sole datum point? That, that is the sole to... datum point uh, connecting the pyramid to Khufu. Another datum point is his name has been found on one of the wooden boats buried on the south side of, oh. the, great, of the Great Pyramid. But that isn't in the pyramid. That's outside. That could have been a post hoc construction of project course, of course it could. God. Yeah, of course it could. It came in the flying boats. Yeah. Well, whatever, however one construes it, they, 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 one cannot take the name of Khufu found outside the pyramid as evidence that Khufu built the pyramid. Absolutely. Um, this, this matter is, is seriously under dispute. It'll be very exciting, ultimately, to see if we're told the truth. Because, you know, I have a problem in believing 
anything that mainstream archaeology tells us about the Giza Plateau these days. But if we're told the truth, it'll be interesting to see what's at the end of those shafts. Now, let's also remember that the Great Pyramid is built on actually a mount of bedrock. About 30 feet high. And the whole descending chamber and that passage, the, the, the whole room at the bottom, that's all been dug into solid yes, stone. Yes, again, this is something that casual visitors to the Great Pyramid don't often realize, um, is that the, the Great Pyramid was built around a, a natural mound or, or hill, may even be the original primeval mound that is spoken of in the ancient Egyptian texts. And cut down into that mound uh, is the, the descending corridor that goes all the way down to the subterranean chamber. And the subterranean chamber is cut out of bedrock, as indeed is most of the descending corridor. Uh, the subterranean chamber is cut out of bedrock and it lies 100 feet vertically beneath the base of the Great Pyramid and exactly beneath the apex of the Great Pyramid. That is um, itself an extraordinary feat of geometry Absolutely. In, order to, in order to achieve that. So what we are to envisage is a natural mound, which I believe... Uh, was sacred for thousands and thousands of years, going way back into the past. At some point, a channel is cut down into that mound, a perfectly straight corridor, about three feet five inches high and three feet five inches wide, which means you have to kind of ape walk down it or, or almost crawl, actually. It's, you yeah. can't stand up in there. I've been there, I know. <laughs> Many times I, I've, I've been there. And it's an eerie feeling to go down there. You come down to the bottom and you get into a horizontal section where the ceiling is even lower. You crawl through the horizontal section and you find yourself in the subterranean chamber, which is cut out of bedrock. And on the opposite side of it is another corridor, which I've also been into, which comes to a dead end after about 50 or 60 feet. This the I would ceiling is flat, but the floor is wavy. The floor is all wavy. Strange. It's a very strange place. And this, I would say, without a doubt, is the beginning of the Great Pyramid Project. This is, this is the sacred place uh, that is deeply and remotely ancient. And around it is then built the Great Pyramid. And when exactly that was done is not is not clear. I personally am not one of those who would divorce the ancient Egyptians entirely from the project. I think the ancient Egyptians were involved in the completion and finishing off of that project and their handiwork is is everywhere to see and I think it's foolish to deny that they were that they were involved but they themselves said that they had they had received their knowledge from the gods, that they were the descendants of the gods, that the followers of Horus were the teachers of wisdom to, to ancient Egyptians. So the ancient Egyptians didn't see themselves as, as separate. They saw themselves as part of that continuity. Well, I think the site itself, and I've been making this point for, for, since I published Fingerprints of the Gods, the site itself we have to date back 12,500 years ago or so, possibly further. Um, and and uh, but it's a site on which there is uh, there are periods of inactivity and then activity resumes. There's some kind of continuity that's being maintained on that site, and I think the ancient Egyptian notion of a secretive brotherhood called the followers of Horus is particularly intriguing in that respect. I envisage something like a monastery being established on that site twelve and a half thousand years ago, being responsible for the creation of the Sphinx, of the giant megalithic temples that stand beside the Sphinx, of the so-called mortuary temples that stand beside the, the, the Great Pyramids, 
Uh, I don't think that those were mortuary temples for particular pharaohs. I, I think they had some other function altogether, and that they all belong to this prehistoric period, uh, that the platforms, the, ground, the base platforms of the pyramids were created at that time. But I do believe the pyramids were uh, finished off when the followers of Horus switched on Egyptian civilization, mm. historical Egyptian civilization, around about 3000 BC. Let's talk about these followers of Horus a little bit. Beneath those pharaonic dynasty lists, the king lists, yes. conventional archaeologists start at a certain point yeah. and they find all this evidence that validates that Manitho's king list was I know, correct. I know. But then they arbitrarily say, as soon as their belief system can't stretch past, yeah. all the other stuff before that he made up. Yeah. I remain stunned by the hypocrisy of the archaeological establishment in that in that respect because the entire chronology of ancient historical ancient egypt as we have it is based on those king lists there are there are there are they occur in quite a number of places one of the best of them is in the temple of seti the first in abydos in upper egypt where we see the pharaoh seti the first showing his young son ramesses the second a list of all the pharaohs who've ruled before their time. They're in the New Kingdom, these guys, 1300, 1400 BC, thereabouts. And they, and Seti is showing his son, this is the lineage from which you descend. Here are the pharaohs who ruled before us, and there are the cartouches cut into the wall, extending away from you for the best part of um, 200 feet down that wall. And that list of pharaohs, along with others like it, is used by Egyptologists to compile their chronology of ancient Egypt, which for them begins in round about 3000 BC with the first dynasty. What they neglect to tell us, and inconveniently for them, is that the list doesn't stop at 3000 BC. It goes back. It goes back beyond that. It goes back tens of thousands of years beyond that, 30 plus thousand years back into the past, that list continues. And to me, it's extraordinary that Egyptologists say, well, this list is perfectly accurate for the period that we recognize as the historical development of civilization. But anything before that, the Egyptians made it up. It was like a fantasy novel. <sighs> no, I think the ancient Egyptians knew much more about their history than any modern Egyptologist does. And I think we need to take those king lists extremely seriously, that there is a lineage stretching back deep into prehistoric times. Here. And those people get more interesting than the Teru as yes. you go back. Yeah. Let's talk a little about the gods. That. Well, the Nectars. They, the they become gods. different. They're not like what the pharaohs looked like later, right? Well, I, I wouldn't comment so much on how they, on how they looked, but how they were how their, their powers, their, their abilities, what they, could, what they could do, how Isis could control and move objects with her voice, how she could freeze a man in his tracks with a single word, mm. you know. Um, this, is, this is what is wonderful about the, about the gods, that these, these were human-like in form. A lot of them are depicted, of course, with animal heads. Um, this is what, uh, what are referred to as therianthropes from the Greek therion, which means wild beast, and anthropos, which means man. As a matter of fact, all of the Egyptian gods are, are depicted as, as animal-headed. The god Thoth, depicted with the head of an ibis, um, also sometimes as, a, as an ape. Um, the, uh, 
Anubis, you know, with the head of a with the head of a jackal. Uh, it's very interesting that that all of that is do, is done there, um, and I think we have to we have to consider the possibility that in the lineage of of ancient Egypt there was an embracing of shamanistic altered states of consciousness. Um, the ancient Egyptian priesthood was, generally speaking, one says that priests are not shamans, but the, the, the priests of ancient Egypt descended from a shamanistic lineage. Uh, there's no doubt that they used the blue water lily as, as a means of entering altered states of consciousness. The ancient Egyptian tree of life has recently been identified by the ethnopharmacologist Dennis McKenna as Acacia nilotica, and Acacia nilotica is a DMT bearing tree. So when we see those pictures of the ancient Egyptians passing a pipe to one another, we now know what they were smoking. Um, they were, they, I believe they were entering deeply altered states of consciousness. Their exploration of the mystery of life after death, of what happens to us beyond the veil of death, was not uh, an idle pursuit indulging in fantasy. This was a, a, an exploration in altered states of consciousness. And it's well known that in altered states of consciousness, you can see the same results on the walls of the painted caves all around the world. That in altered states of consciousness, uh, we see uh, visions and images of therianthropes, of beings that are part animal and part human in form. Uh, and I prefer that explanation to the appearance of the Egyptian gods, that they are... Um, encountered in vision, which does not mean they're not real. Uh, en entering a visionary state may allow us to receive other levels of reality that are normally closed off to our senses. Uh, but I prefer that than to a simple anatomical notion that they were some kind of hybrid beings. Uh, that's my own personal preference. I don't claim necessarily that I'm right, but that's where I come from when I, when I look at this. Well, you wrote a book that's basically a box called yeah. Supernatural. I've written some boxes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Supernatural's large book. Um, yeah. in, the, in the US hardback edition, they published the entire book, uh, but in the paperback, they felt they should take mercy on readers and do a, do a, a slightly abridged version. So about eight chapters on cave art were cut out of wow. the paperback. And I boiled them down into, into one chapter. Uh, but if people want to read the whole story, it's in the hardback, which is still available. But if they, if they want a quicker read, the paperback boils down the essential information on cave art into, into a single chapter. Um, it doubles as an excellent weapon. It doubles as an excellent weapon or doorstop. You know, you can, yeah. you can keep your door open with, <laughs> with Supernatural. Um, and and what, I was, what I was looking at was the, the phenomenon of uh, visionary art, which, which is undoubtedly what the art of the painted caves is, and which is coupled with a radical leap forward in the evolution of human behavior. And the subtitle of Supernatural was Meetings with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind. And the idea that I'm exploring in that book is... Uh, could we be encountering intelligences, other intelligences, in visionary states, in a normal alert problem-solving state of consciousness, we may never encounter them. But in a trance state, which is what shamans are the masters of, of uh, creating, that we might encounter teachers, teaching entities, who have an interest in the human race, uh, and, and who have an interest in bringing us on, or manipulating our evolution in certain ways. So you're basically theorizing that there's a commonality in cave paintings and shamanic visions throughout the world that can't be explained yes. by any type of conventional migration pattern. Yes. I, what I'm suggesting, first, first of all, it involves uh, looking at the whole mystery of consciousness. 
which any honest scientist will admit is one of the great unsolved mysteries of science. We don't under we know we're conscious. Uh, but we don't know what consciousness is. Or the, the, the conventional view of mainstream materialist scientists, and a lot of scientists are materialists, in other words, they seek to reduce everything to matter, that the human being is not more than the sum of his or her parts, that we are just these bodies, okay? And that somehow in the story of evolution, uh, we grew these big brains which helped us to survive, survival of the fittest, and an accidental byproduct of these big brains is the thing that we call consciousness. I don't agree with that view. I think consciousness comes first and the material body comes second. I believe that the ancient traditions were right when they saw us as spirits, if you wish, incarnated in material form. Uh, and perhaps for a particular reason, perhaps we are here to learn lessons, to grow, uh, to develop, so that ultimately we can ascend to another level of existence. Um, and uh, what I explored in Supernatural was the absolute mystery uh, that the same entities and beings are depicted in rock and cave art all around the world. And those same entities and beings appear in the ancient Egyptian works of art as well. Um, so, so, so we cannot separate ancient Egypt from, from this system of ideas that, that altered states of consciousness. And this is where I sometimes get myself into trouble with the, with the UFO lobby. You know, I do believe that there are UFOs. I don't deny it for a moment. And uh, I, I, have, I have no doubt that there is something real behind the phenomenon that we call aliens. And furthermore, that it has powerful physical aspects. But I do not believe that we will solve those problems if we confine ourselves exclusively to physical investigations. We have to investigate the mystery of human consciousness and the fact that in altered states of consciousness, encounters with these entities are registered and are enormously influential and effective upon those who have those encounters. If we're going to solve this mystery, which is a very ancient mystery, we need to look at the mystery of human consciousness as well. I'm not saying that there isn't a physical aspect to the UFO phenomenon, because there is. I'm not saying there isn't a physical aspect to what we call alien abductions, because there is. But if we confine ourselves to that and don't consider the consciousness implications, the fact that you can induce these experiences by putting a volunteer into a deeply altered state of consciousness. Uh, if we don't take that into account as well, we'll never fully understand what's going on here. I would think, if I, if I were asked to put money on this, some kind of bet, I would say that the UFO alien phenomenon has as much to do with interdimensional contact as it has to do with interstellar contact. So you heard the man... UFO contact may have as much to do with interdimensional contact as it does with interplanetary contact. So if you're wondering where you can score some blue water lily or acacia, again, please, we're not telling you to take psychedelic drugs. They are dangerous. If you don't do it correctly, or even if you do do it correctly, there is always a risk of developing severe mental illness and problems including schizophrenia, which can be irreversible. So when people use these drugs, they are taking risks with their lives, and we do not recommend doing it. Now, I want to talk to you about all of the implications of what Hancock has to say 
because what we're ultimately seeing here is that Atlantis was not just some civilization in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It was a worldwide civilization. That's the implications of what Graham Hancock is telling us. These people could toss around 100-ton blocks of stone just like they're juggling Lincoln Logs. It was no big deal for them. They did these pyramids all over the place, and that's what is so fascinating. Coming up next time, we're going to be interviewing one of the truly new groundbreaking pioneers in this field of ancient civilizations research for the purposes of our disclosure investigation I'm talking about Laird Scranton. If you haven't heard of him before you probably will be hearing a lot more of him in the future because he has put together an incredible trail of breadcrumbs suggesting that a single primordial civilization was responsible for ancient Egypt, for what happened with Buddhism, for what happened with the Tibetans, and that a remnant of their society migrated off and survived in secret in a little tribe in Mali called the Dogon. And among other things, they preserved records of their origins coming from the star Sirius. That's coming up next time here on Disclosure, and I'm your host, David Wilcock. Thank you for watching. I'm David Wilcock, and get ready for the download. In fact, I recommend you have your rewind button hot and ready, because in this interview with Laird Scranton here on my show, Disclosure, there is so much information packed into the next half hour that if I even tried to give you a preview of all the things you're about to learn, it would take me five or ten minutes just to try to do an overview. We go fast in this show. And there's so much to discuss. Laird Scranton's work has tremendous implications. And it all comes back to the work of a legendary anthropologist named Grial and his partner Dieterlin. Grial spent 30 years getting initiated into the secrets of a tribe in Africa in the state of Mali called the Dogon. And their tradition is that visitors from Sirius came here pointed up to the star, told us that's where they came from, and gave him very specific information about Sirius that wasn't even proven to be true until later on. The full extent of what they said, including the orbital periods of this brown dwarf that went around Sirius. So there's a lot of really, really fascinating things that you're about to hear. And the core of it is the idea that there was a secret tradition that Grial didn't really get until the end, in which they teach him that there is a harmony between the laws of nature in terms of the creation of matter, the creation of the universe, and the creation of life. 
that all three are governed by similar principles, and that in this weird ancient mythology system, so-called mythology, where the people in this tribe are actually painting their illustrations in the sand, they somehow have preserved an incredible amount of information about science as we know it today that is way beyond their level of comprehension. I know the laughter curtain on this stuff is very large, and there is a later episode coming up where I attack Laird Scranton through the voices of his critics. But before we even get to the critics' voices, let's start with this episode where you just get to hear what the man has to say, and it is absolutely fascinating. Get ready for the meltdown. Get ready for the download. This breaks apart orthodox theology completely. It changes everything we think we know, and it suggests that there was a single unified group giving us an incredible body of information and seeding it all over the world. Coming up here on Disclosure, Laird Scranton. I suggest you get your pen and paper ready, because there's a lot of things to remember. I hope you enjoy it. All right, Laird Scranton, welcome to Disclosure. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So if you could just sort of summarize for us, what was the research of Griol and Dieterlin that started in the 1930s that led to Robert Temple's conclusions? Okay. Well, Marcel Griol was, um, in his day, the leading anthropologist really in Europe. Uh, he okay. was a Frenchman, and he devoted um, 30 years of his life, um, not, the, not every day of the, those years, but he made repeated visits to the Dogon over the course of 30 years with his student, Germain Dieterlin. To and the Dogon. To the Dogon yeah. in Mali. The, uh, the Dogon are, are situated um, eight hours into the desert uh, along an escarpment in a very inaccessible place in Mali. Mm. And um, they spent their time documenting the creation tradition of this tribe. And, and this, is, this was an untouched, unwesternized culture. Yes, um, very, very little contact with other cultures. They had moved to where they were to escape uh, forced conversion, we think, to Islam in the 1500s. Oh. Um, but they claim to have originally come from a large lake far to the, the east of them. So you have this guy, Griol, who is one of the top, or you said the top, the top. anthropologist. He was cutting edge in his day. He was the first to use film to document um, the, his studies. Wow. Um, he was a very, very cutting edge guy. Now why do you think that he would so specifically focus on and devote his life to studying the Dogon in Mali? What, what was the sizzle? There well, that, that's interesting. Um, um, the Dogon were not the only culture in that area that he was studying. There were several okay. related cultures who all had a similar creation tradition. Okay. But I think he realized early on that he was um, he had stumbled across some um, remnants of uh, ancient uh, symbols and ancient traditions, and he wanted to explore that. But he came at it without without an agenda. And uh, but he did a very good job of documenting this tradition. Now, were these like sand sketches that they'd sketch with their fingers in sand, that kind of thing, or what else okay. did they have? Well, the, the Dogon don't have a written language. Yeah. Um, and the Dogon are, are an interesting culture because uh, they have civic traditions that are like ancient Egypt. They have uh, religious rituals that are like Judaism, and they have a creation tradition that's like Buddhism. Hmm. Okay, so Griol and Dieterlin studied this tribe for a very long time to document these things. Um, it's an esoteric tradition, the way the uh, ancient traditions are, many of them are, mm. by which I mean that only 
students who continue to pursue the uh, the inner secrets of the tradition never learn them. The, the secrets right. are open to any tribe member who wants to pursue it, but it's the job of the student to ask the next question. If right. they keep asking a, uh, an appropriate question, they get an honest answer. If they ask a question that, if anybody were to come in from the outside and ask a question that was inappropriate to their status as a, an initiate, they were supposed to be met with silence or, if, if necessary, a lie. So the thing that I remember the most, just so that we can give everybody, because there's going to be some people, and they usually cross their arms, right? That's what the skeptic does. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Blah, 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 blah. But yeah. serious. Yes, the, now, start, the starting point for this, the thing that brought the Dogen into the public attention was a book that was published in 1975 by my publisher, Inner Traditions, called The Serious Mystery. It was written by Robert K.G. Temple. And um, his concern was that the Dogen seemed to have knowledge, astronomic knowledge, that they shouldn't have, given the fact that they're a modern-day primitive tribe. They don't have access to telescopes. And right. they, they understood that the very bright star in the, sky, the night sky, Sirius, isn't just a single star, that it's actually two stars. A very bright sun-like star and a very dark uh, dwarf star, a very heavy dwarf star that um, you can't see because of the glare of the bright star. As right. a matter of fact, modern science hadn't been able to image it until um, well into the, the 20th century with telescopes. And uh, it's a brown dwarf? It's a brown yeah. dwarf. The Dogen also knew the correct orbital period for the two stars and some other details about the, the system, some of which have been confirmed and some that haven't been. Now, these people in Mali, the tribe is called the Dogen. Right. right? The tribe is called the Dogen. And, and the, they said that they were contacted by, was it Umo? Well, this gets into um, areas of interpretation. Uh, Robert Temple's viewpoint was that this knowledge was likely, likely reflected in alien contact. Okay. And his approach in his book was to describe it that way. And he interpreted many of the statements of the Dogen as, as being descriptions of alien beings and being um, uh, you know, over confirmation of the fact that there had been an alien contact. Um, the problem is that in these ancient cultures that uh, many of the, ref the references they make in relation to their cosmologies, their creation traditions, have both historic aspects to them and mythical aspects to them. And so okay. um, you have to be careful as you wade through this stuff not to accidentally misinterpret something that was supposed to be mythical as being historical. Right. So Robert Temple came into this and cast it as being strictly a statement about alien contact, which I think on one level, one level it probably is, but that created a, an uproar and then created controversy and his book sold very well and it mm -hmm. attracted the attention of the, the um, science community. Well, let's, and, just, let's just hold off for one second and, and review something you already said, which is the, ha the, the Dogon cosmology, they're drawing this image of Sirius with another companion star. Yes. And are they pointing at Sirius in the sky and they know exactly yes, what it and is? They, so they could, yeah, they could show the anthropologist, you know, here we're talking about that particular okay. star. And in the night sky, it's easy to find Sirius. You, you, if you can find the belt stars of Orion, which are very obvious, you just draw an imaginary line in your mind down the belt stars and it points right to where Sirius is. So okay. it's easy to identify. And you're saying that they had the orbital periods. They knew the, the orbital period for the two, the two stars, which they shouldn't have had without 
uh, pretty advanced telescopes. They shouldn't have been right. able to even so, image it. So as the brown dwarf crosses in front of the other star, you can see that in the telescope, and there's a time period of that that has been calculated if, by If you can filter out the glare of the bright star, you can, you can see right. that happen. Right. And Is I think it, it possible really, that they could have done it with like a pinhole camera or something no, like that? No, not, not really conceivable that they could yeah. have. Okay, That's now, what skeptics are going to say, yes. of course. Now Carl Sagan came along and said, well, clearly... Um, someone, some modern visitor who had knowledge of the tribe told them about this stuff and they incorporated it into their tradition. And that's well, how they got the knowledge. Okay, but when was the knowledge of Sirius B discovered? I think uh, our earliest knowledge of it scientifically was about 1918 and this was documented, the Griel and Dietland stuff wasn't documented until sometime probably in the 19, early 1950s. Right. Okay, so the timing is such that, that Sagan could be right in terms of time frame. The problem is that the Dogen system that gives this knowledge is all expressed using words that are ancient Egyptian words. That's part of what my work has been, is to, to demonstrate how the correlations work between those words. Wow. Okay? And those words went out of use around 700 BC. So the difficulty with Sagan's position is, precisely which candidate would he suggest came in and gave that knowledge to the Dogen using ancient Egyptian words? It's not a credible thing. And Egypt is in Africa. Mali is in Africa. Right. It's a conceivable distance that you could travel by caravan to go there. Right. Also, the Dogen have civic traditions that are predictably like the ancient Egyptian traditions. So there's every reason to think that there was contact between the two cultures, intimate contact, because if the Dogen do it, it's a pretty good um, guess that the Egyptians also did it. Really? What's an example that would be um, too obvious to ignore? Okay, too obvious to ignore. They establish their villages and districts in pairs called upper and lower. Oh, wow. As e Egypt did. Egypt yeah. was established as two... two um, kingships upper and lower, but okay. two regions upper and lower. Okay, that, that's an, a very obvious one, but there are many others that, that, that are true. You can, they have, the Dogen have the same si uh, set of complicated calendars the Egyptians have. They have um, um, numerous other traditions that are like in ancient Egypt. Um, well, and this includes counting 360 days in the year and then the intercalary days of five added on, right? It includes one calendar that is a 360-day calendar that is cast as a solar calendar, but without the intercalary days. Oh. Okay, and so part of the reason we can, one of the ways that we can place the Dogen um, relationship to Egypt in the time frame is by the things they don't have that the Egyptians did. Those intercalary days appeared in Egypt around 2900 B.C., and the Dogen don't have them. Uh, writing appeared in Egypt around 3000 B.C., and the Dogen have, don't have a system of writing, and nobody thinks they could have had one and lost it. And so those strongly suggest that whatever contact there was between the Egyptians and the Dogen ended before writing appeared. Before 3000 B.C.? Right. Yeah. Um... You said that there are specific words that appear in both languages. Could you give us a couple examples? Yes, and whoever uh, put this system of, of words, this, these cosmological words together, uh, did me a huge favor because um, from a linguistic standpoint, to have, because there are only about 40 phonetic values in, in any given language that are trying to be represented, okay. there's a huge... Uh, chance of coincidence that two words are going to be pronounced the same way with the same meaning in two different languages, but without a real connection between the words. Right. Okay. In the cosmology that the Dogen have, every significant term is given at least two meanings, and those meanings are logically distanced from one another, so you can't guess the second meaning by knowing the first one. Mm. 
So now you go to Egypt and you find the same two meanings attached to the same phonetic value and you've got a lock on meaning. It's not a traditional etymological lock, but it's uh, evidence that any reasonable person ought ought to accept. It goes beyond coincidence. Now, it's not just a single word that does that, but an entire system of words that all work that way. And so it really goes way beyond the possibility of coincidence. I'll give you an example. Um, Many of the Dogen and Egyptian words are also Hebrew words. Uh, The Dogen creator god, who is considered to be their hidden god, is named Amma. And he's like the counterpart to Amen in Egypt, who is the hidden god. Uh, The word Amma also means to grasp or to hold firm or to establish. The Egyptian word also means to grasp or to hold firm. Wow. When you go to Hebrew... I read an article um, a few years back by a Hebrew scholar who was arguing that the Hebrew word amen at the end of Hebrew prayers couldn't be related to the Egyptian god amen because it comes from a root that means to establish. <laughs> so he didn't understand the way the oh meanings were. Yes. So he was actually shooting himself in the foot when he made that, wow. <laughs> that statement. But this is the way the words work, and they tie out, and there's lots of other evidence besides that to support it. I mean, for example, with the two gods, each holds a similar role in the cosmology, similar relationship to other deities. Uh, they're credited with the same acts. So there's, uh, they have the same iconic objects. So there's lots of evidence to, wow. to correlate this on. Now, we also have uh, a fascinating study of the Hebrew uh, Sephiroth, the, the original Kabbalistic tree of life. Yes. And... As you're telling me this stuff, I'm thinking, hmm, is there a Kabbalah connection to this? Absolutely. Uh, and okay. uh, the farther down towards the bottom of the system you get, the more commonality you can see with the Kabbalah. Really? Yes. Could you give me an example? Uh, uh, about five years ago, John Anthony West emailed me, and he said, you know, there's a word for, for the kind of study you're doing, the comparisons you're doing. It's, there's a tradition that Schwaller de Lubitz out of Egypt, the symbolist, uh, wrote about. It's called the Bridge of Sirah, S-I-R-A-H. And the upshot of it is that when the truth is finally known, it will lie along a razor's edge between two chasms, one that represents science and the other that represents superstition. Mm. Well, in the Kabbalist tradition, they have the same concept. It's called Nisera, and it describes the same sorts of elements of of cosmology that relate to this bridge of Sirah concept in Islam and that also tie back to the other traditions that I say. So it's a fairly fairly compelling... um, reasons to think. Yeah, and if the words that the Dogon are using correspond to the words in Egypt, you're saying that this predates the written hieroglyphic yes, and delineation of those words? It's generally understood that cosmology preceded writing in, in the culture, the ancient cultures, okay, including Egypt. Okay, and what it looks like is because each of the cosmological terms that the Dogen define are normally associated with a drawing, a cosmological drawing. As a matter of fact, the Dogen priests say they are incapable of discussing a, co- a concept of cosmology without also drawing it in the sand. Oh, wow. Okay. These shapes that have multiple meanings associated with them, there are about a set of about 30 of those that take the same form and same meanings as Egyptian glyphs. Mm. So it looked to me as if the earliest hieroglyphic writing in Egypt, they adopted wholesale these cosmological figures and meanings as meanings for the glyphs. Right, so the key with hieroglyphics is 
it's it doesn't happen until later that language actually uses vowels and consonants well, to delineate sound. The, the, the official viewpoint is that the Egyptian hieroglyphic language was primarily phonetic in nature. Right. But if you consider that you've got 40 phonetic values and 4,000 Egyptian glyphs, <laughs> it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that it couldn't have been phonetic primarily. Absolutely. So we have a culture that seems to have been in multiple locations. We could say that it was the precedent for Hebrew culture, the precedent for Egyptian culture, the precedent for Dogon culture. Right. That there may have been one seed of origin that they all sprouted from, and the, the Dogon just sort of got isolated into a small area. Yes. Uh, You've just described the last 20 years of my work is tracing that concept. Now, what's interesting about your work beyond what we've discussed already is that you have advanced the idea that these allegedly primitive myths encode a great deal of relevant scientific information that is very current for our time. Yes. Now, the serious information, as it turns out, is just the very uh, smallest tip of the iceberg. Wow. The Dogans say that their tradition describes how their tribal god, Ama, created matter. Now, I could see from my limited perspective at the time I started researching this that they had the definition of an atom right, they had definitions of electrons, protons, and neutrons right, but they, des they described a whole descending structure from there that I wasn't qualified to evaluate. So I started educating myself about the structure of matter, reading Brian Greene and Stephen Hawking and people like that, and what I discovered was that you can take passages from Brian Greene and Stephen Hawking and lay them side by side with descriptions from the Dogen, along with the diagram from Hawking and the drawing, drawing from the Dogen, and lay out the entire structure of matter all the way down to waves, and it's right. Wow. And Richard Feynman would be included in there, too. Well, Feynman, yes, Feynman, well, Feynman probably wouldn't agree with this, yeah. but many of the things that Feynman talks about are included in there. But it actually goes a little bit beyond what traditional astrophysicists talk about. For example, the Dogen discuss how is it when, okay, if matter exists as waves originally and then is, uh, becomes particles, the Dogen talk about that process of how that happens, and Brian Greene and Stephen Hawking don't. Uh, so the they've Dogen, got Heisenberg's uncertainty principle nailed. Yes, and they also talk about things like what preceded the Big Bang. Wow. So we're talking um, information that looks like it leads what we know by maybe 50 years. So they're seeing galaxies as blossoming from a center or something? Okay, and, uh, what, if, if what? you remember that in these esoteric traditions, the, in the hermetic tradition, the quintessential statement of, the, of this creation tradition is, as above, so below. Right. Okay, that implies that at some level, the processes of the macrocosm, the universe, are fundamentally similar to the processes of matter. Sure. Okay? Um, that's what this Dogen system is all about. Um, when, they, when they talk about cosmology or creation, they're talking about three themes. Creation of matter, creation of the universe, and creation of life. But then what they proceed to do is define all three of those processes using a single sequence of symbols. Ah, oh, right. Okay, so these the sequence of symbols, because each symbol can be used effectively to, to represent an aspect of those processes in the right order, demonstrate that all of those things are fundamentally similar when you get to the bottom of them.
So you therefore can extrapolate into uh, the science of DNA and chromosomes. Right, you, you could. There are, things, there are statements they make about those, uh, those things that are, are uh, as scientifically accurate as the, the creation of matter uh, stages they talk so, about. So, for example, uh, human chromosomes are going to be either XX or XY, depending on gender. You have right. 22 chromosomes. Getting Does back to the XXYY, in Dogen numerology, three, which is comparable to the three branches of that Y chromosome, is the number of the male. Oh. Four, which corresponds to the four branches of the X, is the number of the female. And seven is the number of the individual. You combine the X and the Y and you get the person. Oh my gosh. And the tradition is a matriarchal tradition. What they've just described there is uh, the genetics of a woman. Or of a girl. Right. Obviously, a skeptic would say, well, he's just playing with numbers, but there's more to the chromosomes that you're seeing than just that. Okay. For a person who researches the things I research, the single greatest danger in trying to research it is our own wishfulness. The mind, our mind is wired to see patterns even where they don't exist. You know, if you think right. of a child lying in a field looking up at the clouds, they don't, often don't see clouds. They see, oh, look, at there's a chicken, and look, there's a, uh, you know, a, yeah, they, see, they like, see images. It's like the red cheese sandwich with Jesus. Right, that's right, that's right. So people are going to see patterns even where they don't exist. So the difficulty for somebody like me is, how do you distinguish between a wishful interpretation and one that's a real interpretation? And the standard I set for myself was every interpretation has to start with an explicit statement on the part of the culture. So okay. I, uh, I don't Graham say Hancock that the system represents knew. matter. The Dogen do. Wow. Now, once you get into the arena where you have multiple traditions that look like they came out of the same system, now you can require that that flat statement be confirmed by others of those cultures, that they also saw it the same way. So if you have two cultures overtly saying, we see it this way, now I'm in a position to pursue that. And when I get to that end of that pursuit, if I can finish a simple sentence, a sentence that says, we know this must be true because, then I have a, a working interpretation. If I can't, that gets set aside, that's something that may or may not be true, and I hope that some, um, some little detail will turn up in some other culture that will fool all the other ones. So I've seen and I have in my slideshows a sculpture of allegedly from the Dogon in Mali that has a human face that's very unusual. Yes. It has large eyes that wrap like clear across to about here on the face. Okay. And a large head. Okay. Um, you've kind of been really tentative about whether there's any ET involvement in this or not so far in our interview. Okay, well in the Buddhist tradition it's flatly stated that um, the most sacred symbols were given to them by a non-human source. They flatly say that. Mm. In the Dogen tradition, they say it was given to them by a non-human source, but they qualify that. They say it was not only non-human, it was also non-physical. Okay. But this is a complicated non-physical because they tell us that whoever gave them this knowledge in ancient times was concerned about what the long-term effects on our health would be from being around them. Oh, wow. And so their solution to that was to take eight Dogen tribes people and sequester them at some remote location and teach those eight the civilizing skills they were trying to teach them and the 
these civilizing skills were given in the context of this creation system and then send those aid back to the tribe to teach everybody else. Do you think it's possible that they had radioactive uh, isotopes coming off of their bodies or something? No, I think if they truly were non-physical, there are indications that uh, if you believe the Dogen and the Buddhists and the Kabbalists, universes form in pairs, one material, one non-material, okay. and that there's a boundary between those <laughs> universes that through electromagnetics you can breach. Right. Okay, now... Anytime you get into a situation where there are electromagnetics strong enough to create these funny effects that might potentially breach that, you get really bad effects on human health. Mm. And I think that that's what they were talking about. Sure. Well, another thing that I find really fascinating is you have the Dogon in Africa. Right. And then you have the Dogu in Japan. Yes. Now, I have a personal knowledge of this because I studied with a guy who was a Shinto acupuncturist. The most horrific torture you can imagine. You'll find <laughs> they'll stick the needle all over your body and find the most painful place and just go crazy on it. Uh -huh. They were originally tax accountants, right? 